When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Graham Scott, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. It's another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. You know who it is. You know what time it is. We're not going to do, we're going to go a cold intro this time. Um, I, I'm going to say thank you to Ben and thank you to Mike, my unindicted co-conspirators who are joining me once again. And w- speaking of someone joining us once again, we have him back on to talk again about his book where almost everything has changed. Mr. Jeff Anderson. Jeff, thank you for Howdy. joining us. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. So, so we are, Jeff, we are so glad to have you back. The book we're talking about, again, is Organizing Towards Agility. And I believe, Ben, was it two years ago? Three years ago we had Jeff on last? I don't remember how long it was. Yeah, it's, it's COVID time, so it's all warped at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. There's a bit of a time dilation. There's a bit of a time dilation effect, right? So, <laughs> Well, excuse me. I guess I'll start off with this, Jeff. Um, so we talked and you were still working out ideas. You were still formulating yeah. stuff. And you had, I, I dare say, you were a good 75% of the way done when we last talked to you. It felt like that, and, yeah. And, and then you went back to the well. You you totally went in the kitchen and went, went went off the reservation. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I finished the book now. And it's um, it's about 80% in a totally different direction. And we better and I were like, oh, okay. What? So let's start. Well, before we dive into the context, let's start with the genesis of that, Jeff. Like what was going on that you, that it made you pivot the pivot the window? Well, being like extremely transparent, I was probably getting a little bit disgruntled with Agile at the time. Um, a lot of us are. And it just, there's what you hope is going to happen. And then there's what always, ha- or you know, what tends to happen um, mm-hmm. in the, the clients you're working with, uh, the organizations you're working for. Um, I think sometimes we're too hard on ourselves and we want more for the people we're trying to help than we get to. Um and I started, so I'm going to, this is a bit of a long story, and I'll try to shorten it, but I started going way off the reservation around how can I talk more about progressive organizations? Um, this, a lot of the post-agile stuff you'll see in things like reinventing organizations or um, any of the um, corporate rebels type work or humanocracy, and I started trying to take it that direction and uh didn't take very well. It took me a few months to realize that I didn't really have the credibility to talk about a lot of that stuff as um, uh, sort of first order concepts. The examples I had weren't really good enough. The, the experience, but what it, what it, what that did lead me down is how to connect some of the stuff that I was doing with better storytelling. Um, how to connect some of the concepts around humanity and teamwork. Um, my original book was very structural. How do you set up agile operating models? How do you remove barriers, you know, eliminate handoffs? Um, and what I think, I, um, uh, what I'm hoping is coming out of this version of the book is I spend a lot more time talking about teamwork. And mm-hmm. like the kernel of agility isn't the team. It's two people in, or three people engaging in teamwork. That's the real kernel. And it's that hyper co-creation and collaboration and 
you know, like pair programming is almost the core and, and pairing and mobbing and selling and swarming and all these different buzzwords really to say, hey, can we get out of our silo and can we get up and work together on something? Uh, so that became kind of the new core of the book. And um, what I did is I started going through a lot of my <clears throat> experiences, you know, a lot of the theory that I had in the book. And I said, well, let's go and bring some real stories into this. So I went to some of my clients, which very graciously, <clears throat> almost all of them got on board in a public way. So <clears throat> if you're Canadian, you'll be like, oh, this is like a great Canadian agile book because we've got Scotiabank and we've got shoppers and Loblaws and the Alberta Treasury Bank. And we've got all kinds of, you know, kind of organizations where people would go, hey, I, I recognize that, eh? You know, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so, but lots of real stories of um, people being tenacious and scrappy and trying to create environments of agility in organizations that are basically industrial, still in the industrial age when it comes to the mm -hmm. management. But, but that's, and that's, for, that's agility for most of us. We're, we're, we've got a team or we've got a team of teams or some sort of like maybe a line of business uh, maybe the whole organization's doing agile, but it's a very bureaucratic, bureaucratic form of scaled agile. And it's very traditional form of agile. But there's always a set of people that are trying to really increase agility, really operate, uh, you know, in a progressive way. So there's a lot of stories in there now. And um, as the stories started taking shape, the book became more based on how do I tell the story rather than all the mm. methods and practices. Like that's all still there, but I try to really elaborate on things with, with real people and real experiences. Uh, one of the things that, and when we talk about book structure, one of the things that that stuck out at me when I read it for the second time was the way you built that narrative is you start with teams, then you go with the ecosystem of teams, and then you keep building from there and there, and you get you get bigger and bigger and bigger without explicitly saying, and now we're going to talk about scaling. Um, your, your, your intro, the intro chapters, right? The whole setup and the background and stuff, I really, really love. There was a quote in there that I highlighted, highlighted and it's on a post-it over here next to me, um, where you, you said, your value network is working in spite of your management structure, not because of it. <laughs> it is running against the official part of your organization. And that to me was, a, I mean, We've talked about Niels's work before with Open Space Beta, yeah. which you know he talks about org physics. But that to me, like if I could give one one-liner to every leader I'm working with today, it would be that one. It's we're successful not because of your management; it's, it's because a, the value yeah. delivery people know whom to talk to to get the value out the door. That that, that that's absolutely um, right. Um, and in, and in fact, you know, more and more people are coming along uh, to this type of thinking. John Smart with us uh, and co with Safer Sooner Happier would be an example of describing this sort of agile change or this new ways of working change. It's less an active definition and more an active discovery. So how is value being created under the radar? Who is talking to who to get things done? Um, if you know what those people are, you could start saying, hey, why don't we put it, even if it's a temporary team, let's put a team around this. Let's put a backlog around it. Let's go kind of, you know, let's articulate what that workflow looks like and let's continue to kind of explore the organization and make the implicit parts explicit. And that's actually a, a lot of the job. And that I think is um, it, for me, it's, it's almost like I describe it as finding those um, those areas where teamwork is working well and illuminating that and trying to emphasize where the teamwork is working well and try to emphasize it and expand it out. And so, uh, Jeff, you, you made a statement that um, some people who may be new to this uh, 
more modern way of thinking might find um, uh, a bit strange. And you use the term temporary team, and that just kind yeah. of leads into the the perspective on teams and teaming. And yeah. teaming is a verb just really struck out of me. I, I, it got me off my duff to actually download and start um, dynamic reteaming. Um, <laughs> Amazing book, by the way. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just started it the other day. Um, but, uh, can you share a bit about um, it? That there's sacred cows that get uh, yeah, slaughtered throughout, and and uh, <laughs> love that. Um, that that seems to be getting at a sacred cow. Um, what are, well, can you maybe tell the audience a bit about your perspective on teams and teaming and temporary teams and helicopter yeah. teams and. Well, like I'll start out by saying I think stable, you know, cross-functional, persistent teams are amazing, and they make you know that's the goal because. Uh, or sorry, that is a goal, which is to create a safe space for people to engage in very effective teamwork. And teams are like, you know, having that persistent, I'll call it typical big A agile team is a great way to do that. But now I'm going to uh, counteract what I just said. Teams aren't the goal. Teamwork is. And, and you know, even if we see any sort of implementation of a team-oriented workforce in any organization, you'll see lots of teamwork happening across and outside the team boundaries. And that's, that's always going to happen because especially in um, you know, an, an environment of uncertainty where things are constantly changing, your team model is always going to be a little bit or a lot wrong. It's impossible to create the ideal team uh, model. And outcomes and demands and market change and things are going to come into your organization, which is, is going to force you to collaborate across those teams. Um, you know, people used to make a lot of, um, a very big deal about like the product oriented organization. Oh, we got to organize around products and, and, and everyone's going to organize around products and that's much better than functions. But then, I don't know, something came along that said, we need to go and optimize uh, our onboarding of all products to a digital channel. And we're going to do this across 17 products. And if you get too religious about the big A agile stable team, you're going to allow that initiative or that outcome to go across 17 teams. And then they're all going to have to collaborate with each other on the consistent experience. And they're all going to, you know, have to collaborate on the end-to-end journey. And then each team is going to be really responsible for a bit of like product-specific stuff. And none of the stand-ups are going to support that collaboration. None of the plot, none of the cadences, none of the metrics, nothing. So, you know, if, if you're really following the one of the sacred cows, agile teams must be stable you're going to dramatically reduce agility and dramatically increase bureaucracy and the need for management overhead as you get this work across all these teams. Now, um, if you bring everybody together into the same team, you do run the risk of instability. And those people will feel less safe to engage in teamwork at first. So you do have to get them into that team and give them enough time to actually learn how to gel with each other. But to me, if you've got a you got to, you have a big change in outcome. You need a big change in team structure. So like sacred cow one static team structure doesn't make sense to me. I, I really like the way, um, like I first saw this in Kanban, by the way, which, which was the, which was the saying, don't let the work travel to the teams, let the workers travel to the work. So it's the opposite. And they, and you use visual management to say, Hey, you know, um, where do our people need to go? And how can those people in uh, self-identify where they need to go? And then even if they form into a virtual team for a few weeks and then let the work move on and go back to where they were, as long as they've got a repeatable pattern for doing that, 
that's as legitimate of a pattern as you know the big agile stable team like there's there's lots of these patterns you can use I will tell you, when I saw the stable teams, the road agility, I just took a picture of that line that I highlighted and I, you know, I got my copy here with all my stupid yeah. notes and I Amazing. sent it to my, to my, um, I guess my cohort at work at my current job, which is coaches and transformation people and not. And it was, it was like, like, like South Park. Everyone's getting mad, right? But yeah. when they stopped and they thought about it, it was, oh, oh shit. You know what? You're right. Maybe we are, to your point on getting too high centered on the sacred cow, maybe we are creating fragility by say, supposedly emphasizing stability. And uh, Ben, Ben, like myself, we're big heterodox thinkers. As soon as somebody's saying, you know, nine out of 10 doctors tell you to use this toothpaste, the three of us are yelling saying, well, what does that 10th guy know that we don't? Like, no, I want to listen to the 10th guy. And you introduce a lot of these type of things where you challenge the shibboleth, but in a way that makes you think where you go, yeah, he's probably onto something. We got too much, a little bit too far down the zealot rabbit hole and not the open-minded rabbit hole. So, so I want to say, I, have a, I am a fan of stable teams, but there's like a few pragmatic. One of the concepts I have in my book is, uh, and it's not my concept, it's just borrowing Dunbar's numbers. And, you know, the idea that, you know, um, with five people, you can really work together with 15 people. It's an active, you know, network and 50, 150, 500, you start getting into culture, identity, affiliation. Um, at least in enterprise settings, I don't know of that many five people, cross-functional teams that can truly own an outcome. It's just... The architecture is not there. The technology is not there. The operations is not embedded. So, so you end up getting a cast of 15 people in every team uh, or 20 people in every team. And that's not a team. You can't have a stand-up with 20 yeah. people. You can't. So, so immediately, and this happened when I was over at, at Scotiabank in, in a group known as Global Business Payments, we were asked to go help with agile project management. And of course, we're never supposed to do agile project <laughs> management. Um, but, you know, you don't say no when someone asks you to help with something that's a little dysfunctional. You say yes, and by the way, here's what the future looks like. So we helped them with agile project management on this 10-person team, but then that worked so well that the business started saying, well, can you do this other thing for me? And it became a 12-person team, 18, 25-person team. And we're like, this isn't a team anymore. So we had a big Kanban board back when people actually worked in front of each other on a big wall. And um, we just said, we're going to draw swim lanes in this Kanban board. And we're going to define the left part of the board as being more cross-functional and more the whole team, but typically there'd be some like architects and you know, leaders and that kind of thing. And the right side of the board is going to be more feature-oriented and they're going to be groups of eight and 10. And they're going to have their own stand-ups and planning. And so we, we started creating cadences that were for the team of teams and some visual management for the team of teams. And we started doing the same thing for the team level. And what we noticed is if you're just a little bit practical, you can do a lot of agile scaling by just taking visual management, being a little more bespoke on your cadences, getting an end-to-end -end flow going, and operating these sort of ecosystems that range anywhere between kind of like 20 on the low side and maybe sort of like 50 would be maybe the upper maximum, at least in my experience, before you start saying we need to break this ecosystem up. So that's your, your, your stability is still important, but if you have a, an organization of, of 30 to 50 people where there's that's enough room to have identity still or, or you know a reasonable amount of trust and half those team members are stable and half of them are floating and moving based on needs, you can start seeing patterns.
you know, of like when this type of uh, complex uh, engagement goes through, we're going to need these three legacy folks and this UX person and this. But when that one comes through, we can use these people. And people start have actually being able to self-organize not only around the work, but the sort of the topology, so to speak, of the mm. work itself. Yeah. And so, um, Jeff, you touched on something that really resonated for me. That was the in the uh, ecosystem uh, portion where you're talking about um, social density is the concept that scales, not agile processes. Yes. And um, the the idea of containing dependencies within context boundaries. Again, you know, Dunbar numbers, plural. Um, and just the whole idea of market-facing teams and the core and edge. And um, that just really resonated. I was like, oh, that, you know, somebody put into words what I have lived that kind of made sense, but you took the idea of market-facing teams a little bit further than I think many organizations are initially comfortable with. So uh, I was wondering if you could uh, tell the audience a bit about sure, absolutely, mar- and what what makes it so powerful because I, I think it's easy to miss that if you're not. So, so first of all, I have very few um, good original ideas. So. Um, <laughs> The, the idea of this fluidity at the ecosystem level um, is really because um, I got really deep into Kanban and saw it as not being about the board, but about this, this, this enabler of social dynamics and fluidity of organization. Um, the, the market-facing teams really came out of Neil Flaglin's Organizing for Complexity, where he literally says, don't draw things as a hierarchy, draw it as a circular value network where all of your, what you do is you start with all the market actors and their outcomes, and then you say, okay, what is required to deliver on those market actors and outcomes? And let's just say that's the team. And then what will end up happening is as you're putting all these sort of people and capabilities into these market-facing teams, you start realizing that not all of this stuff can be in the teams and you start moving it into the center of the organization, uh, which I call the core. I think he calls it the center. Um, I use the word edge and core. Uh, to mean like the edge is the market-facing team and the core is the center just because I do a lot of work in banks and they love that that kind of language. So I just kind of took it on. Um, uh, they'll, have, they'll have a lot of things like productize the core and enable the edge. And I'm like, yeah, those are pretty cool sentences. So I'm just going to kind of steal that. Um, uh, um, but, the, and you know, I've, I've never been able to take it to its extreme. But what I have done is I've been able to say, um, if you were to recast your organization, what would it look like? And then we get, a, we get sort of a lot of people going, oh, if, if only. And, and then what I've been able to do is, is go into various teams and ecosystems. And if, if, you know, if, the, if the idea is that you want to have a really you know, good handle or a really solid core, and you want to have really good market, you know, real good precision um, with the edge, then um, we're going to describe your team as a knife. And we're going to ask you why, you're, you know, why is the edge or why is the blade dull? And why is the core giving you really poor kind of like a really poor handle? Why, is there, why do you have a really poor handle on the core? Sorry, I messed that up a bit. And sort of going through all the barriers. Because a lot of any agile coach or, or consultant will probably um, have had this experience. Either they were on the subjugated end of it or they were inflicting this on somebody else where they came in and said, oh, let's measure how agile you are. But since we can't actually measure lead time or customer value, we're going to do this thing where we'll put you through an agile maturity matrix and we'll sort of like, and I'm guilty of this too. We do it sometimes just because we don't have anything else. Um, And it's all based on skills. It's all like, can you write a story? Can you break it down? Can you, can you? And I said, well, maybe that should be two out of the eight barriers. 
like the capability is important, but you know, how many handoffs between you and your end user? Oh, we got to go to the customer research people that go to the enterprise analytics people that talk to the customer ownership group that gets the feedback from the external marketing group that gives it to the team. Okay, so that's not a very good market facing team and that's an extremely imprecise edge. So how can we sharpen that a little bit? And so we start asking about how do we reduce the barriers to market access? Um, and then borrowing an idea from team topologies, um, how can you improve the enterprise experience? Everyone talks about customer experience. Well, enterprise experience is the experience your teams go through when they deal with enterprise support functions. So let's go talk about enterprise experience. Um, uh, in team topologies, they called it developer sort of like, or team experience. And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not just about the developer, it's the whole team. Yeah. So I decided to call it enterprise experience. And most enterprise experiences are relatively poor. So let's go and assess that instead. So agility assessments have very little to do with team capability. It's still in there, but it's, you know, two out of, you know, kind of like a larger pie of things that are much more focused on access to your customers and frequency of customer feedback and, you know, mm. experience uh, when working with the enterprise and the amount of choice and autonomy you have to actually kind of get things done. You've touched on Kanban and visualization a few times yeah. and how, how powerful it is and, and in, how, in many ways, kind of how common sense and simple it can be, right? Like just let's, let's visualize it. Let's put it on a picture. And you've got some great visuals uh, in the book. Uh, particularly love the the view of the graduated backlog and um, you know that whole view of things. Um, why? Hey, can you talk a little bit about just some of the 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 power that can happen from these visualizations? And B, why is it that particularly bigger, older companies, it's so hard to do something so simple? And and the the default seems to be more how do we obfuscate information via PowerPoint rather than let's just get the actual information out there visualized in real time. I don't think it, that's, a, that's a really good question. So first I'll talk to, I'll talk to the power. Um, the interesting thing about Kanban systems is you're visualizing how much work um, is occurring in every state of an imaginary workflow. And the workflow is imagined by the people doing the work. Um, and it's also changed by the people doing the work, uh, which is really powerful because you have this abstract assembly line. And just by visualizing it, you could start asking much more intelligent questions about who is doing what and why it's why there are bottlenecks somewhere, um, well, how much risk is in the work. People tend to be very um, quick to grasp things they can touch and feel and color and sort of Kanban is deliberately simpler than all the other systems that have been used to date. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, I mean, I know we don't like Twitter anymore, but um, like Twitter is a much, uh, Twitter at its best is an effective mechanism because you can only say so much, you know. Um, we now know the problems with that, but um, Kanban is, is a bit of a, of a similar situation where it forces you to say less, which makes sure that it's easier for people to get on the same page. Um, and it's extremely powerful because if I know that there are, you know, a whole lot of things in shaping, and they're just piling up, but the downstream delivery is not happening and, and you know, it's not working. I can go to the, the discovery people can go, you know what, what's going on downstream? And they can spontaneously go downstream and start engaging in an active teamwork with the people downstream and say, do you need help? And they can say, yes. Most traditionalists organize around 
either a project <clears throat> with individualized roles and responsibilities or a department with individualized expertise. And so if I want to add a new type of function or a new type of work to add a new department or a new team and it's all siloed and that's why you end up like large programs will have 27 work streams and 17,000 project managers all coordinating with each other to kind of understand what they're doing. But in the Kanban world, you just say, what is the work? Who do I need to help on it? Let's swarm. And if nothing's working, instead of trying to plan it all out, you just do less at a time until things start to move. So it becomes a much simpler, easier way for people to dynamically engage in these acts of teamwork. People don't gravitate towards it, I think, as much as they, they could because they're still coming out of decades of industrial era management training, which says more specificity is good, more planning is good. If I only plan this thing more accurately, it'll be more, it's going to, like, they think predictability is an act of planning. You know, um, when we say predictability is an act of feedback and learning, and sure, you need to plan but you're learning, planning, learning, planning. And, and, you know, they'll be like, well, you just didn't define it well up front. So let's just get better discipline and let's just figure it out. And, you know, one of the responses I, li I like to say is I'm going to take two babies, three babies, actually, that's better, and two toys and stick them in a playpen. And I want you to plan exactly what toy is going to go in what baby's hands for how long as an act of, you know, <laughs> predicting their sharing. And I'm like, it's not going to happen. And it has nothing to do with complication or number of moving parts or, you're just, you're, 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 people don't realize they're in an emergent domain or they've been trained not to accept that. And so we're, it's, 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 it's all psychological acceptance and, and, and it's, it's um, acts of unlearning are more important than the acts of learning, which is, you know, it's a long, it's a long journey, you know? Well, it's definitely a learned blinder um, yeah. condition where I was in a, I got pulled into a conversation and someone said, well, we just need the teams. And this is part of the org that's still doing a, a waterfall thing. And they said, well, you know, we really need to target for this year. We need to get better at estimating. And I went, well, explain that. And they said, well, our plans always get thrown to the side and there's always stuff that we don't have. And, and we grossly underestimate the work that needs to be done. So we just need to get better at estimating. And I started laughing and it didn't go over well. <laughs> when I started laughing, I said, what, what do you mean you need to get better estimating? I said that you're never going to get better at estimating. I said, you know, too much complexity, too much, you know, it's the old, it's that commercial where somebody's turning their yeah. light switch on and off in their house. They're going, what's this do? And three houses down, the garage door is smashing into the lady's yeah. car, right? There's too much stuff that, that we can't, that we, we can't predict. We just get better at, okay, well, thinking smaller and managing what you can. Um, and, and on that note, there was something you brought up in the book, which I thought was really interesting, man, you could have pulled on this thread for like 40, 50 pages, the idea of a micro enterprise, yeah. which was, which was, um, Ben and, and, uh, Mike and I have done Peter Merrill's stuff. We love his stuff. He talks a lot about open book management from John Case. So this is higher. This is, uh, Mayakawa. Yeah. This is Semco. This is that whole yeah. idea of setting up a company within a company, which owns it from womb to tomb and works with the customer and a P&L and that idea I think is absolutely brilliant because it, back to the Dunbar numbers, right? What Ben, Ben, Mike, and I come from a company that was 70,000 people. How could you hope yeah. to, how could you remotely hope to effectively manage an organ that size, but you start chunking it out into different um, almost organs inside of a living body. There I go, Mike, with that analogy again, <laughs> it's much easier to manage it. And that is something that I think maybe if companies got a little bit more um, confident, if they tried it, they would find they would see the benefit of it. The, the real context boundaries. Yeah, yeah. What you're talking about, Jay? Yeah, I'm sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. 
I was going to say what what you're talking about is actually like it's a much more advanced form of context boundaries or ecosystems. Um, people, the biggest I think roadblock for people, um, uh, at least in traditional organizations, is you have to give up the idea that you can it, that it's okay to have market choice determine the winner outside your organization, but have command and control and central planning work inside your organization. Most organizations are I kind of like this is going to probably offend some people, but our internal kind of little sort of like 1970s era communist fiefdoms in that you've got one person doing enterprise architecture, one person group doing HR, one like all the central support functions are monopolies. And when you've got 88,000 people, that's enough people to have a market. And and if you go and be the only person providing a service to 88,000 people or 90,000 people or whatever it is. It's not only unfair to the people using that service, it's unfair to the people providing the service. Because the people providing the service can't prioritize who to service. And they try to do everything and they end up doing a poor job. Uh, like any time you use a monopoly outside in the real world and you get bad service, you know, the people working for the monopoly have just as much of a thankless job as the people getting the service. So organizations like Hire get onto this idea that um, you only two teams should only work together or two ecosystems should only work together if they create a contract and they say, well, you do this work and I'll pay you this much and I'll do that work. And so at a higher, higher HR is a choice. You choose your HR provider and there's multiple HR providers or, you know, you want to use these people who are providing some kind of infrastructure you choose. And all of these kind of, you know, collaborations are an active choice. Amazon has a lesser version of that. You can't prove that you're going to have people using your product. You won't get funding. So even the internal products, mm. you have to prove it based on usage. So there's this notion, like really successful organizations at scale, they have a network, but the network isn't a command and control engineer network. It's a real network. And so choice is being used to determine which of these things succeed and which of these things don't succeed. I can just hear the people out there screaming, <laughs> but what about compliance and security and cost efficiencies and economies of scale? And uh, yeah. I'm sure you've, you've encountered that. So I can just, I can, I can hear it out in the ether. But that's, but that's what, I mean, this could sound really bad, but that's what communist China says, what's wrong with Canada and the United States and, you know, the Western world. Oh, there's too much choice and there's no safety. And that's all true. Until the person on the top makes a really bad decision that impacts everybody, and you, you know, you go from a completely closed society to opening everything up in a matter of two weeks, and you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like, and that's what you have uh, in some of these more totalitarian organizations. Is they're really, really good until they're really, 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 really bad, mm. and you know, and, and I don't think that works any differently inside of an organization. Um, regulations you could have numerous regulatory providers that are competing with each other and um like at amazon there's a lot of social peer pressure that if you're not using the established framework just because you're a renegade people will go like but this is good why aren't you using it and the actual social density the but the social density really comes into play and says uh what's going and i'm not saying amazon's great in all ways there's lots of toxic stuff there too but this idea that um uh, social kind of, you know, pressure and, you know, you know, the, the, like the, the reasonableness factor can go into a lot of these uh, conversations. Um, so if you're in a highly regulated environment, um, you might have a number of in-house really good regulatory providers and you choose to go with none of them. Well, you're going to have somebody say to you, well, you know, if you incur the risk, by the way, you own the complete profit and law at this risk. And, um, 
you're gonna if you go under, you're going under on your own, and all the people that are under you will no longer have jobs. So, you know, you skin in the game. Yeah, you, you're forcing you them skin to in the game. game. Yeah, you, yeah, and yeah. rather than having the regulatory kind of body, who, the advisors in your organization be completely responsible for it, they're just there to advise you. And you've got like one of the things that, that's really neat with these concepts is the team has the PL. Or the ecosystem yeah. has the PL. And maybe it's virtual. We've done it virtually with some organizations where at least they know their um, carrying costs. And then they know kind of sort of um, uh, a model which based on usage, what revenue they're making. And it's not to the complete higher level, but you see a lot better decision making when people can see kind of the inputs and the outputs. And then, then they have more skin in the game, basically. Yeah, it kind of, it, it kind of reminds me of a point that you, you hit on um, was about autonomy, not independence, and you know, kind of the, the balance there, which reminded me of something from Xscale, autonomy with alignment, and um, it, kind of tangentially there, but is that 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 really um, resonated for me? Yeah, the, was it the remark about there are no independent teams, but there yeah. can be autonomous teams? That was like yeah. one of those. Ah, uh, but I mean, back to I mean, I want to yes and Jeff's metaphor where. If these orgs, if these chunks inside of these organizations are communist fiefdoms, right? Does that mean safe is the Potemkin village? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. Ben, what do you got, Ben? Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about um, it's not necessarily the tool that you use, but also kind of how and the intent with which you use it. Um, you talked about how, for example, if you start using cloud services and um, the those governing it within a company kind of deploy it and control it and kind of mandate it and phase gate it in certain ways, then you're kind of completely missing the benefit of using the cloud. So, uh, and it ends up being a distributed monolith. So could yeah. you speak a little bit about that? Um, well, first off, I'll talk about um, the, the sort of like the enforced DevOps model or DevOps as a, a set of enforced tools. Like um, when, when, I've got um, uh, a couple of really good um, coaches. Um, Ashley uh, and Addison are two people that work uh, at Agile by Design who are working with um, a senior director in Scotiabank. I'm doing a lot of, the, I, gotta, I gotta spare some love to some of my other clients in a second, I'll do that. Um, but they were trying to work with a centralized um, platform as a service, kind of everyone follow the same tool, the same standard. Um, and this client was doing a lot of very specialized IBM payment gateway transaction management server type stuff. And the existing tools that were being sort of, you know, enforced by the organization worked great if you were on mobile and web and, you know, um, had the sort of the, the classic digital stack and no way would work with anything that was sort of bespoke, you know, proprietary product, because how could it, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And so what that group did is they had that about, 12 teams that needed this type of infrastructure. They needed, and they needed the practices, pipelines, continuous testing. They're starting to really scale and things were starting to really slow down. And so what that group did is they, they created this enablement function, which was known as the DevOps enablement function. And what they did is they treated all of the other, you know, 12 teams as their first class customers and basically said, you know, there's 12 of you. And for now, based on the volume of work you're doing, we're going to take a request from you once a week, you twice a week, and you three times a week. They did a basically a sharing allocation. And actually, 
that wasn't needed for long because very quickly um, what they found is you need to allocate by the enthusiastic adopters and not worry about at first they were trying to limit how much they would gate and then they realized they had the opposite problem so they started working with the the eager adopters not on tools but on behaviors like we need to deploy frequently we need to be able to deploy with a high degree of you know confidence that the quality is good okay we need to we need to and they said okay here's the behavior Here's how we're going to kind of extend or make up our own tools by pairing with them on anything that got built and then getting it deployed and getting it working. And they weren't done until the behavior changed, uh, until they paired. And then that was done versus a lot of DevOps is done is I built this thing. And I'm like, no one cares. It needs to, you, need to, you need to treat DevOps as a product and done is when users are using your product and loving it. So it, it's not hard to do, but it, it just takes, we had to treat that DevOps enablement team as, as a first-class team, but also, uh, by the way, I think most agile teams should be doing this too, spending less time in their team and more time going upstream and working with their customers. In this case, they're pairing with their customers and then bringing it back to the team and saying, this is what we did. So you know, no, I, I also talk a lot about this idea of doing a lot of upstream traveling. So mm. however buried you are in the organization, you're in this, you know, back office kind of, I don't know, component agile team or whatever, legacy developer agile team, whatever you want to call it, integration agile team. And, okay, that's great. That's your org structure. Ignore that. Who's asking you for help? Go upstream, work with them, pair with them as closely as you can. You'll get to better outcomes. So, And you touch on that when you talk about the idea of scaling both horizontally and vertically, which is another, the way you put that conceptually, it made me stop and go, ah, that makes sense, where... We, we typically only view scaling as uh, building the ecosystem, right? All the layers yeah. of abstraction and the, and the layers of, let's be real here, the layers of bureaucracy. Whereas you talk about the concept of scaling horizontally, where that's connecting, your, your words were connecting upstream and downstream dependencies to, to um, cross boundaries and deliver work. It was coordinating the work within larger and larger organizational boundaries. And yeah. that to me was a big insight. That was, an, uh, that was a light bulb as well. It's uh, when I try to say, well, we need cross-functional teams, that falls on deaf ears. But I say, look, we're trying to build a, a, an ecosystem that can deliver the value on its own. Yeah, that's right. And, and not have to, to minimize the, you know, a, a, autonomous, not independent. That to me was a much, it was, honestly, Jeff, it was a much easier sell with some of the people I was working with because they were able to visualize it easier. That's right. I, I mean, what's, what's interesting is um, scaling horizontally is really an act of, people engaging in acts of teamwork through the entire kind of value stream or value network or call it whatever you want. And you can start anywhere. Like if you're, I was working for, um, I'm going to call them the Canadian credit card company just because they were a little mercurial and letting me use their name. But um, uh, I was working with um, uh, the, the, the managing director of their branded cards, Brent Reynolds, amazing guy. Uh, I, th I think I learned as much from him around organizing towards agility as, as I was brought in there to go help them to do. And what he started uh, to do immediately is said, listen, I'm going to take all the aspects of my business, product, uh, finance, security, all of them, and I'm going to start laying them out in this ecosystem type structure. He called them lanes. And he said, you know, at first I'm going to try to put somebody in a team. And if, if that doesn't work because they're like in legal and there's no way that this one team is going to need legal for like as a full-time member, I'm going to put them in what he called a lane. And he had one lane for like upsell customers, another lane for people that were like in recovery and remediation. And I can't remember what the third one was, like new products. And 
If I can't put them in the lane, then I'm going to put them in the line of business. And then if they belong in the outside enterprise um, and I can't get them in my lane, I'll accept them there. But he had this very almost like an uh, it, it's and I, I I show this as an onion in the book where you try to start at the team and get as that team to be as eponymous as you can. And if not, go one level up, not go one level up. And, you know, if you do that and then put some uh, combination of visual management, cadences, various practices that you can, I, I call all the agile practices you know and love or agile adjacent practices, and just apply them at a different scale, you can do an awful lot and you've never opened up any book on scaled agile frameworks. I'm not mentioning anyone in particular, but like any, any of the sort of, there's a lot of stuff around, oh, we need to scale agile with a 200 page, do, you know, kind of like methodology. And I'm like, playbook. Oh, you kind of, a playbook, you kind of don't, you kind of need to take what's working at the team level. Under, don't, don't apply it rote, understand why it's working. Oh, it's about flow. It's about teamwork. It's about small things. It's about working in pairs and threes and fours. Okay, how do I now start creating larger organizational context? And what cadence, what practice, what visualization can I apply there to get teamwork going at that level? Jeff, what you were just describing, I think, is well summed up in one of one of the um, pull quotes that I put off to the side for myself to to come come back to when I need to, and that was. Uh, if I wrote it correctly, a secret that many don't see at first is that agile practices can and do scale. You just need to take the time to understand why they work and adapt them to the context of the larger scale. And what you just described to, to me is a, a, a brilliant example of, of that um, that principle. And I, I, I thought, like, you know, that that's kind of getting cutting through all the the nonsense and getting to uh, how to make this work at a larger scale. And I just thought that was great, along nice. with the visionary pragmatism. <laughs> I love. Yeah, that, that one. I, I, I'm, I'm, I owe you royalties for that because I've used that quite a bit. The oh, idea, amazing! That that the two word that two word combination really does describe what we're really shooting for in a very elegant way. And I mean, who doesn't want to be visionarily pragmatic? Yeah. Right. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like how the word agile sold so well. Who doesn't want to be right. agile? Right. I, I mean, the the visionary thing, uh, like I've especially coming from, you know, my background is I came from a big consulting firm and was lucky enough to get the support to do the, the agile change thing before agile was like popular. And you could say agile outside of, you know, a room in the back of the high school with the other developers, um, which, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm proud to say that those are my roots. Um, so I was, I was, I, I, that's my excuse for saying I probably did agile change the wrong way and every wrong way you could possibly imagine. Um, big change, big roadmaps, huge visionary. Let's, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and um, the problem with doing it in a visionary way is um, you're going to miss something if you try to figure that out up front. And you're going to miss big things. Like, yeah. like the devil is in the details and the warts of the organization and the scarring that's there from the, from the it's, it's all about the past trauma and the past income and the past and the current constraints that really um, help you do this. So the pragmatism needs to be start small, do it incrementally, in, invite, don't inflict, um, be very willing to, you know, be less like, do use cases if you want to. Oh, did you, you love use cases. Here's a great, you know, Alice, there's this guy named Alistair Coburn who Coburn. does use cases in a cool way. So let's go do those. Or you don't want to do 
practice X. Fine. You want to do mini waterfalls. That's another John Smart thing. Okay. Mini waterfalls. We're going to do mini waterfalls. Like it, like be willing to move at the pace that the organization wants to, because mm. success brings permission and permission brings more success and you can start building this out. So you have to really, and I, I, I'll admit, I'm not, it's easier to write about it and then sort of like kind of gloss over some of the mistakes I've made, but um, I struggle with the pragmatism part sometimes, but I've got lots of other people that help me and say, hey, Jeff, remember that pragmatic thing you talked about? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, 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 okay. So that's, it's really important to kind of step up back and make it your clients, make it your customers. And that, by the way, if you're not a consultant, your client and you're a coach full-time, then your customer is the teams. And if you're a scrum master, your customer is still the team. So you've always got customers and um, make, make it really go at their pace. And then, cause it's, 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 it's sort of like a, like, it goes like this, it starts, it stays shallow. And then all of a sudden it spikes up. Yeah. The, the hard, uh, the hard bit of that is, uh, the minute to minute day to day judgment calls about where, to, when, when is it helpful to push a little bit yeah. versus pull yeah. back a little bit? And well, I'm, I'm a pusher. Like, yeah. That didn't sound right. Um, I like to push a lot. <laughs> but it's true, uh, though. It's it's yeah. the, it's almost like a bellows, right, Jeff? Like you have yeah. to lean in and push, and then you have to take a step back, and then yeah. you have to lean in again for maybe maybe five degrees, ten degrees off to the side. But that it's it's that constant. Yeah. And I think there are people who misconstrue that they would hear that and say, "Well, I need to push all the time, or I need to lead from my heels all the time." Whereas it really is. <laughs> Uh, what's what's Ben's term of it all comes down to what, what's it's all what's, about finding the right balance it's all about finding the right balance yes and, and it yes. really is like there are times where you know if if you're if you got a bit of a nibble on the line pull the line as hard as you can but there's other times where you have to let it go because you're right meet the organization at the rate of change that they're ready for because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna out another tired sports metaphor you outkick your coverage and you find yourself out there standing there alone with a team bearing down your neck that wants to crush you into the, into the, the yeah. AstroTurf. Absolutely. Yeah. And a conversation came up for me at work today was the idea of change fatigue. So if you put, if push too hard, too long, you create fatigue or allergic reactions to go back to, you know, the biology thing, Jay. Mm-hmm. And if you don't push enough, then they're not, the, the organization is not challenged and it doesn't, it, it you kind of get stagnant. So it is, it's a Goldilocks kind of problem. And you know what, we're human beings and we're dealing with other human beings. And sometimes we make good calls and sometimes we make not so good calls. And the, uh, the thing that uh, doing this for 15 plus years has taught me is um, to uh, trust the team and get back up and do it again tomorrow. Cause if you don't, you know, <laughs> what do you got? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you kind of poked at this, Jeff, the idea of one of the biggest things we can do as, as change champions or forces of change or voices of change or coaches or transformation gurus or whatever is a little bit of humility. Yeah. Right? A little bit of humility, right? Like, yeah, maybe this isn't the time for me to lean in and, and beat this person over the head with it. I found some of the best results I've gotten is where I've said the thing so many times that someone's going to say, someone will say in a meeting, oh, and here comes Jay talking about flow efficiency and we got to stop keeping people busy. And I sit there and laugh because you, it's obviously gotten it to the, through the first level, right? It's obviously <laughs> sunk in enough that they can parrot it. So then, then that opens up. Now I don't get to, ha- I don't have to repeat yeah. that line anymore. I can say, okay, so what are we doing about that? Now that you know the, you know the spiel that's going to come out of my mouth. 
you're just going to keep ignoring me. And yeah. it's a it's a different conversation. It's a different conversation. Well, listen, we've gone on an hour, and I want to be cognizant of everybody's time. Um, so Jeff, if if people want to want to find the book, they want to get in touch with you, they want to follow you and see what you're up to. Where do they go? Where do they look? Uh, there's a number of places. So first, books out on Amazon. So go look for Organizing Towards Agility by Jeff Anderson. We can see uh, Mike is holding that up. Um, the second one is um, uh, we've just put up a new website called Agility with Jeff. And um, it's kind of it. What I tried to do is um, answer some, like we actually went and said, what are people asking about around Agile? Like, what are some of the most popular questions? And some of them are, are, are quite basic, like, you know, which methodology is better, Agile or Waterfall, or what's the best one? And so what I tried to do is take some of those questions and say, okay, you know, it's not about waterfall versus agile. It's about industrial versus human. And, you know, just try to, or, you know, um, you know, reframe some of these things, like which one is the best agile methodology? None of them, you know, and just talk about the values and principles and the mindset and, and the practical things you can observe without getting into methodology wars. So, um, and then I'm, I'm slowly starting to scale up the content to incorporate some of the stuff in the book as well. So if people are actually, I think all of us as coaches are looking for new ways of just answering the mail with some of the basic questions. I'm trying to do it in a way that I hope is uh, similar in the vein of what I've done w- within the book. Um, and then finally, you can um, also just, um, I'm also the president and CEO of Agile by Design. And so if people want to go to agilebydesign.com, We've got a blog there that not only do I blog on, but uh, a number of other coaches that work in our organization do as well. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, I want to thank Jeff for coming on. I want to thank on behalf of Ben, Mike and myself, on behalf of Ben, Mike, myself and Jeff, I want to thank all of you for tuning in again. You know where to find us. You know how to go to discord. You know, we've got royalty free outro music. So until next time we're saying cheers. Bye everyone. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.